Thanks for coming to hear the Dharma tonight. Is this, you hear me in the back? Yeah? Okay. A couple hours ago I was saying to Tawari that I felt like I should just let go of my notes tonight and talk extemporaneously because I felt like I needed to get out of the way of the words and just speak from the heart. And then I had a technology malfunction, and I couldn't print my talk. (laughs) So I scribbled down some notes that I may or may not be able to read in just the last few minutes. So I don't know if that was divine intervention or what, but that's the way it is. But I wanted to speak a little bit tonight about... The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King is a spiritual seeker. And there's so, so much. I've just been reading his speeches and sermons and listening to as many audio clips as I could, um, as I could find, not just today, but today for sure. And I'm so moved by the power of his genius, you know, his He was just fearless in his willingness to, there was no separation between social needs, political needs, and spiritual needs. And his real, for me, his real genius was his willingness to communicate that, not in words, but in a kind of transmission. That when he spoke, he was so deeply inspiring. And you could... It reminds me of my grandfather a little bit. Not, you know, I'm not trying to say my grandfather was all that, but he was a Southern Baptist preacher, and I grew up listening to him. And I remember, you know, feeling inspired when I was a teenager. My mom didn't uh, make me get baptized when I was a child, but gave me the choice when I became older and decided that I wanted to. And he baptized me in his church when I was a teenager. And I remember feeling that like inspiration, not that I knew what I was doing necessarily by saying yes to that but that I was like very interested in spiritual life and I was willing to follow that somewhere. You know, I didn't know where it was going to go, but I was willing to follow that somewhere. And it's like what I hear from Reverend King as well. You know, that he's not only telling us something that he knows, that he's learned through his own experience, but that he's looking for it right there. And you could feel that, like, God, he's so sincere about this. Right? Do you know what I'm talking about when you hear him? Yeah. And this is the Buddhist path. What I wrote down, we called this retreat Wholehearted and Noble Participation. And we said that we'd interweave the teachings of Martin Luther King and the Buddha so that we can learn to do our own work in the service of our collective liberation. Right? Not so that we would learn, so that somebody would tell us what to do, but so that we could keep listening for that quality of inspiration, that sincerity that's there, and allow that to point us back to the unfinished business that we have left to do. And so that when we do that work, that noble work, of listening to our own hearts and exploring our own experience and 
not denying anything that we think or feel as part of how we learn to find freedom in this life. And as we're doing that, then we're always doing that in service of our collective liberation. And why is that? There's this, um, in the Buddhist teachings and the scriptures, there's a, a description of faith that's an image of a, like a large tree, right, with big branches and, and uh, covering a lot of area and providing a lot of shade where animals come and find refuge, protection. And it's because faith inspires us to be decent humans, not because we get it right all the time. I mean, we hardly ever do, actually. Even in places as very, you know, like with the deepest spiritual, this IMS is such a wonderful, beautiful place with such deep bones and people with deep commitment. And it's so imperfect, right? It's so imperfect. So not because we get it right when we have faith, but because we keep seeking, right? We keep looking like our faith inspires us to keep taking some kind of action. And in Buddhism, that effort that's made, that faith inspires an effort to keep looking for the sensitive heart, to keep seeking intimacy in life, to learn how to not turn away from even the hardest things, because we can learn something from it. One of uh, my teachers, Sayadaw Utejaniya, he he has a book called Wisdom, uh, Awareness Alone is Not Enough. Because awareness alone, awareness itself or mindfulness is just like a mirror. It reflects back what's already here. But wisdom is what allows us to connect and be intimate with the truth of life. Without wisdom, life becomes overwhelming overbearing. It feels impossible to be a human being, right? It feels impossible to be alive in this world that's so harsh with so much suffering, right? We would just want to collapse under it all. But it's only with wisdom that allows us to keep finding, keep seeking a kind of refuge that's reliable, something that will help us and support us in our lives in really deep and meaningful ways beyond what's obvious to us. We like to seek refuge in all kinds of ways. We might not see it as an exercise in faith when we're seeking refuge in ordinary ways, like you know, seeking quick routes to happiness by blaming others, condemning. I mean, how easy is it to just look out at the world that we live in and cast blame on somebody or someone for something or turn that to ourselves and condemn ourselves for all the wrong choices or bad behavior that we've had. But wisdom, as impossible as it may feel to find in moments and as confusing as it is, because it is confusing, it's confusing for the ordinary mind, which is why we need people like the Buddha and Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King. I'm just really training myself not to leave out the doctor or the reverend part because it all matters. That's why we need people like them that help teach us by their, by what they're expressing, you know. 
about how they want to live, about how they want to train the heart, even if they don't find it in any moment. Before the Buddha was the Buddha, he set off on a, a journey with this deep exploration about suffering and the end of suffering, really. And it, that curiosity infused every teaching. That You could distill every teaching back to the central inquiry. What is suffering and what is freedom? And what he learned is that that's not two different things. It's actually one thing. Because in order to find freedom, in order to taste the deepest liberation, you have to walk through the door of suffering to do that. So we need these masters, like these two, um, to help us show, show us the way. You might know that um, Martin Luther King He pastored a couple of churches, one in Memphis, before going back to um, pastor a church in Atlanta, the church that Raphael Warnock is now the the pastor of, Ebenezer Baptist Church. And he, during his his time as a pastor, he, he made a habit of teaching on the power of love, right? Love your enemies was the title of the sermon. And it's, you can find excerpts of it or longer pieces, both written and on, on other audio clips on YouTube and such. But he used to teach this sermon every year, and it would shift and change, I'm sure, as all sermons and, and speeches do with time and experience. But I found this an interesting thing, that he kept going back to this, this teaching, how to love your enemies, and not in some... Idealistic way, because he made a point in these sermons to talk about how love is different than like, right? and that he didn't like people all the time. Right? Didn't like what they did to him. He didn't like what they did to other people. He didn't like white people all the time, right? for very good reasons. But he really practiced loving his enemy, because loving is loving your enemy is exercising God's love in some way, finding God's love. Right? And I'm not exactly sure what that meant to him, right? And we don't, we don't exactly need to know either because we can use that lesson, you know, his willingness to keep going back to something that felt hard to do and to find a difference between like and love and understanding what that means and, you know, going back to the words of Jesus Christ and pouring through the, the scriptures and the teachings to help him learn something, there that we, he was able to share. And when he said, you know, I could, I could just feel him reaching for that. Like I'm really working on loving everyone right now. It doesn't come easy. And that teaching about it was an exercise in learning itself. In this very um, popular quote, he said, power, and this is when he, well, let me read this one first. He said, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is greater, is the greatest thing in the world. I told you it might be hard for me to read my own writing. Let me read that again. 
I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. And I was like, huh, when I read this again, it sounds like the Buddha talking about nirvana, the end of life, you know, reaching a place of liberation in his own heart, a place of freedom, something that's more reliable than what we can ordinarily find in our search for happiness in the ordinary things of life, relationships and the safety and security of homes and all these things are important. But there's something deeper that we all, we all look for in spiritual practice. And then, of course, his, his brilliance in describing using the phrase beloved community, right. which reminds me of the Buddha's description of Sangha. And how sanghas are always, lay sanghas and monastic sanghas and Buddhism are always in an interdependent relationship with one another. And there's so many places in Buddhist scriptures where the Buddha actually condemns his students for not taking care of each other well. And Tuari and I were uh, talking about one of the, the suttas in which a, a group of lay people come to, come to the Buddha and ask, you know, I find it very endearing, and I'm just going to paraphrase. But they say, you know, we're just a group of ordinary people. We, ni- we like nice things. We like things that smell nice and look nice. And what do you have? What kind of teaching do you have to offer us? And the Buddha didn't go like, no, you have to renounce those things and sit on your cushion and go on retreat. He didn't say any of that. He said, you know, you have to learn how to show each other what your practice looks like and emulate that, right? So be good to each other. Be in community and learn from each other. Be good friends to one another. And it's such a beautiful thing. Just learn. Continue to be good. Learn what it means to be in relationship and do that in wise and skillful ways. Look at each other for wisdom. Notice the wisdom in one another. Notice what faith looks like in one another. Notice what ethics looks like in one another. He just went through this whole list of what you look, look for in one another and how to really practice emulating that. There's another, another um, often faith, is, there's a, an image, in, another image in the scriptures, in the Buddhist scriptures about Faith, and uh, there's, the Buddha uses an image of cows to describe faith. And he says that, you know, if there's a, a stream that is strong and difficult to cross, the, the adult cows go first, and although it might be tough, they make it across. Right? And then next, the adolescent cows follow. And they are a little hesitant, but they go and... They might have to stop along the way, but they eventually get to the other side. And then the young cows are next, and they're too scared to cross. And they, they're just afraid they're going to get swept away. And so the moms, the mother cows, make noise for them. And they're lowing 
then causes the young cows to know that it's safe enough to cross. And so in this, I find that such a lovely (laughs) description. And pointing back to sangha and friendship and once again, how we are, we are those brave animals for each other. And when we don't know what to do, then we look for wise beings who have something to show us. And so many of us have come here with questions, big questions, big questions about how to be wise and skillful in the world. And those questions, Twary and I have been moved by the questions in the hall and some of the questions that we've read from the basket already. Like how to skillfully honor grief and despair, you know, and keep going. How to do that. And unfortunately, there's no blueprint for us, right? If it were so easy, if it were easy to answer the big, if it were easy to do that, we would just pick up the rules and apply them to our lives and like, no, this is a step-by-step thing. And we'll just, you know, step one, step two, step 25. And then we learn how to just be skillful that way. But even when we come to a place like this, we learn how difficult it is to be with our own hearts and minds. We see all the dodges that are there. How often we sit down with such skillful intentions, like, okay, I'm going to really watch my mind right now. And how many seconds can you watch your mind? Did anybody get to like five seconds total (laughs) yet today? It's not that easy, right? Yeah, it's like two breaths in, and the mind is, you might just count one and a half breaths, might even get to two. The mind is off thinking about something, And not only does the mind go off, think about something, but we then engage those thoughts, right? And now we're constructing views and beliefs and ideas about how things should go, right? We do that out there all the time too. Go to lunch, oh, this lunch isn't for me. You know, what what are these people cooking for? You know, just ordinary people, we don't eat food like this or, you know, or the other side of things. We're like, oh, this is so beautiful and dreamy and nothing's this place is perfect there's nothing wrong with it right the trap of complaining or the trap of the greedy mind that just wants to idealize everything you know these are the same traps that we get into when we're out in the world and trying to do trying to you know do what we can do to support justice and equity and you know, all the, all the things that we care about, all the things that Dr. King cared about. It's not easy to watch our minds and take action, right? But this is such a good training ground for that because things are simple and we actually get to see that. Otherwise, we go out there and we just, it's a 50-50 chance what kind of intentions infuse the actions that we take, right? And we know from practice that with every intentional action, with every thought, with every word, with every 
movement of the body, with every intentional movement, every time we decide to do something, there's an in, that moment has been seeded by an energy that's either going to be skillful and lead to something beneficial or unskillful and lead to something that's not beneficial. And without our learning to be intimate with our own hearts and minds, we'll never actually know. And that's why places with skillful human beings still create messes. That's why every institution is imperfect, even the beautiful ones, even the nonprofits that we love and our spiritual institutions. You know, it would be, they're just places that have been seated moment by moment, the action, the response of human beings with mixed intentions. Some intentions that we can understand and some intentions that we don't understand. And so when we want to understand engagement, how to be engaged, what to do, how to shape the world that we live in, this is the most, this is the most noble thing that we can be doing. Taking the time to really learn how to work with what's here, how to acknowledge the feelings that are here, those moments of despair and confusion, the doubt, those moments that we feel like we want to quit, that this doesn't make sense, the moments that the heart wants to blame or condemn or, you know, externalize what we're feeling, like this isn't right, these people aren't right, or whatever that is. Like all of these moments are the moments that we learn how to take the show on the road right. when, things, when, the, yeah. when things are much more complex right. and the answers are less direct, the responses are less direct. In Sharon's book, Faith, that Tori was talking about earlier, it's one of my... I take this book with me on every retreat I go on I have for many years, and I often, when I go on retreat, I'll build, I'll bring some things, and I'll make a little altar in my room, and I usually just set the book there. I don't really intend to read it, but it's a, it reminds me of courage, and so I like having it accessible to me if I needed to tap into that, but mostly I just want to remember, right, that it's possible, and in this book, she she really makes room for all of the experiences that we might have. Faith and despair, faith and fear. Right? Because, it's the, and because it's faith that actually inspires us to connect with what's real. And in fact, she talks about um, a progression of faith from what she calls a bright faith, a kind of falling in love. when we take a step into the unknown and we don't know what's going to be there, but something inspires us to do that. Like if this is your first retreat, you might not know. Like, you know, some friends told me this might be a good idea. I don't really know what I'm getting myself into, but I've heard that mindfulness, I've done some practice myself, and I've heard that it's beneficial, so let me check it out. That's a kind of bright faith, right? And then when you get here, every moment that you return to the hall, Right? is something leaning into a kind of faith that we might call verifying faith. Because you're learning from your own experience something. You're learning to question right? and see for yourself. 
So Sharon talks about verifying faith, a kind of faith that's about letting ourselves ask questions, which always involves letting ourselves have doubt and be curious, like, what's the next move here? Is this right? Is this going to work? How do I know? What are the benefits here? What is the cause and effect relationship? And when we start to know ourselves in that way, then we get a better sense of what, we're, what, what seeds we're planting in our lives and in the world. We might not know how they're going to sprout, but we have some sense like, oh yeah, I know because I've tried this. I've tried this out. I've tried this habit of turning away from my pain and I know how it goes. And I also know what it's like to linger too long and feel overwhelmed. And I know how that goes. And I've learned because I keep returning. I keep returning. And I keep asking questions. The Buddha was a fan of debate. He encouraged his students to talk and and, uh, have debates about what he was what he was um, teaching them. Often when I, I give talks at my home sangha, at the end I'll save a little time for question and response, and I'll always tell people, disputes are always welcome. That's how we learn. We shouldn't be afraid of that, of asking questions and of being confused. Because that is there's a seed of faith that's there when we're doing that. There are a couple of words in the, that the Buddha used to describe faith. One of them is sada, and that's a, a commonly used word to describe faith. And another word is pasada. And these two words, samvega and pasada, are often combined. And samvega is often described as spiritual urgency. And it might be the kind of urgency that we feel when we think about the response that's needed in the world right now. The response that we want to be a part of. The movement towards justice. We want to be a part of that moral arc that bends towards justice that Dr. King talked about. And so that kind of spiritual urgency that's there, it can be a, it can be, it can feel like an urgency of justice. Like, wow, time is running out and a lot's at stake here. What are we going to do for ourselves? How am I going to be a part of that? And that kind of energy that's there with some vega it can be agitating. And samvega usually comes with a sense of, um, a deep sense of, uh, a deep sense of suffering. And even a sense that, 
that there's something here that we're not seeing. There's something here that's not clear. And there's kind of, there's a surrender to that. Like, finally, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender to the fact that there's something that human beings that caused that thing, that caused the Buddha to leave and question whether or not his privileges were enough to make him happy. You know, that, there's a, a seed of wisdom there that's like, wow, this isn't enough. This isn't, I don't think this kind of happiness is, I think it's superficial. I think there's more to be found, right? Samvega is a, there's a bit of wisdom there that understands that. And it's agitating, like fine, and finally we're going to surrender to that reality. And we're going to see what else is there, right? And this word pasada points to uh, the frame that we use to go looking, a deep faith in the Dharma, in this case. A fine, finally, a turning towards the deep wisdom teachings that feel very elusive. So samvega is this kind of agitating urgency, and pasada is this deep faith that there has to be a better way. And so some of these when we decide to turn towards, when we decide to fall to our knees, right, and ask the hard questions like, wow, we've tried a lot of things as human beings and it hasn't seemed to work to help us come together, to take care of each other, to learn to be ethical human beings, and to seek our own and collective liberation. And when we do that kind of surrender, we surrender to these elusive ideas that don't make a lot of sense to our ordinary minds that you've probably heard Twary and I say already. Like, it's just this, right? Sweetie, it's just this. Well, ordinarily, if it's just this and this hurts, we take a hike, right? Or if it's just this and it feels good, we try to hold on to it forever. Or something else like, This is just nature. That bit of wisdom that's there recognizes that this isn't personal. This experience that's arising is a result of causes and conditions. It's not a personal failing. It's not a reason for us to feel bad about it. It is a reason for us, for it to move us. That's different. But understanding that experience is just nature allows us to somehow meet it without collapsing under it. It's hard. Life is hard when we take everything personally. And it doesn't mean we take less responsibility for experience for the way things are when we understand that it's nature. We still do that. That's where the ethics and the wisdom meet. The Buddha talked about all of the teachings are organized in three major categories. Wisdom that helps us understand something like nature, wise view, oh, it's just this. The ethical part of the path, which is how we live relationally, we always have to work on that. And then how to settle the mind so that we can understand something more deeply, right? So that we can taste that wisdom that's there and available to us. So that when we understand nature, it doesn't, negate, it doesn't negate the other two parts of the path, right? They're always integrated. In fact, 
The word sutta means thread. And threads are woven together. And sometimes we'll tug on one piece, right, one of the teachings. But when we do that, the whole cloth always comes with it. So we don't ever just tuck on, if we tuck on just wisdom, and it's, take, it's, a, it's a not, not pulling the path with it. So if we pull on samadhi, for example, you know, that's not enough. If we pull on mindfulness, it's not enough. Awareness alone is not enough without wisdom. Right? We make mistakes this way. If we think that practice is just about making good efforts in the world, well, that's not enough either because we'll eventually get burned out because there's no end to suffering in the world, is that right? One of uh, a wonderful teacher in Minnesota, Resma Minikin, you maybe know his book, My Grandmother's Hands and the Quaking of America, the second book. And he's asserted that it'll take us at least seven generations of good, diligent work right, to see any meaningful change in terms of racial justice and our habits of harm. And so we're always learning how to pull the whole cloth, right? So that when we make efforts in service of our own and collective awakening, when we're doing the things that we want to do in the world, when we're taking action, we're pulling wisdom along so that we're providing the, kind, the means to be sustainable, right? So we're being wholehearted with our engagement, even our engagement to return to the cushion and to take care of our heart so that when we go out into the world, the hearts that we contribute our hearts of love and compassion and wisdom and not hearts of hate and impatience and blaming and condemning and all of the things that we wouldn't want to add more of. wholehearted and noble participation, and I might say without attachment. Well, that's the question for us. How do we stay wholehearted with our engagement? How do we learn how to take care of our own hearts and take care of the world? Not two different things, same thing. How do we learn how to do that without attachment to a particular outcome? That's the steadiness. That's where samadhi comes in, the steadiness of mind. How do we remain stable and balance to keep going for seven generations or more. Because if we burn out at the end of this year, the end of next week, and this is, <laughs> I mean, I might criticize my, myself and historically my white siblings for bouncing out of the fight. That's how things usually fade away, right? We lose interest or momentum. And so we want, all of us, we want to learn how to be wholehearted with our participation for the long haul. How do we do that? If we think we're going to get to the end of suffering in any way, that's probably a recipe for burnout. But if we remember that suffering isn't something that we need to transcend, it's a beautiful aspiration to support the end of suffering, that's 
what the Buddha was doing through his own journey, looking for the end of suffering, offering that to other people. That's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful aspiration. But if we try to get to the end of it, we're going to be disappointed. But if we learn how to use our energies and our lives in a balanced way, you know, in a way that supports all beings for as long as we need to, right? what, what, what would make us stop? Right? Because we still hold that inquiry, suffering and the end of suffering. We move through suffering to find freedom. And we apply that again and again and again, right here and now when we're sitting and when we're taking action and at doing advocacy and activism, whatever else we engage in. We just keep doing that because it's the right thing to do, because we're learning, because we're establishing ourselves as learners rather than as people that are going to get it right, people that are going to reach the end. It's often said that it's a privilege to be born as a human being. because learning is so fast and strong. And in the Buddha's teachings, he talked about uh, rebirth, so that we'll keep learning in multiple lives, multiple lifetimes perhaps, we'll keep learning the depths of wisdom and how deep our compassion can run, and we'll keep learning about all elements of the path until we've, we really got it through multiple lifetimes. And we don't, you don't have to believe it. The Buddha said he didn't have to believe that. But it's important not to throw it away, right? not to just throw it out of your hearts as a possibility. And so if we think about ourselves as being lucky to be born as a human being, because we, have to, we get to learn something about suffering, then we don't expect there to be an end to suffering, because that's how we learn. And in our participation with suffering, the learning continues, right? We can make the mistake sometimes that hiding is not is a way of not getting dirty in the work, right? Or not making mistakes. But what we learn from this teaching of on karma is that every every intentional action matters, right? And so even the choice to hide out in a retreat, or I like to tell myself sometimes, so even if you choose to lock yourself in the closet for the next seven years, sweetie, it's a kind of participation, right? It's always a kind of participation. So none of us get a pass. We're all participating and co-creating the world that we live in. We're co-creating the karma that we're swimming in, right? All of this that we feel now, we're just swimming in the legacy of history. It's always with us. History is always with us, right? We can't avoid it. We can't deny it because it's right here. It's moving through us. And in the same way, all the seeds that we plant, whether they're skillful or unskillful, we're going to be swimming in those collectively tomorrow and future generations will be swimming in those too. So we don't get away from learning how to participate or we can get away from learning, but we can't get away from participating. So in that way, we can just really ask ourselves, well, how, how do I want to participate? 
Do I want it to be a guess of what kind of, whether or not I'm planting seeds that are useful in the world, or do I want to have some say in that? Do I want to have some say? And if I want to have some say, then I take care of my heart. So the engagement always begins right here. And we train in these very simplistic ways by sitting and walking with our eyes cast down and not engaging each other as social beings most of the time so that we can do that hard work and that noble work. One of my favorite uh, quotes by James Baldwin. He says, for nothing is fixed forever and forever and forever. It is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The seed does not cease to grind down rock. Generations do not cease to be born. And we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses they have. The sea rises, the light falls. Lovers cling to each other and children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold on to each other, the moment we break faith with one another, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. So deeply wise, just his pointing to how everything is changing, just like the Buddha pointed, everything is always changing. We're always participating. None of us get a pass, right? Everything is The earth is always shifting, the light is always changing. And we are responsible. People like James Baldwin and Martin Luther King and Gandhi, Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, and so many others. They all had something in common. They are all spiritual seekers. So important just to remember that our spiritual practice is something that we need to abandon or yeah, it's not a it's not a foe. It's actually the deepest support. It will help us become more trustworthy. And our actions will be more pure. I'll read a couple more things. It's from the epilogue in Sharon's book. Some of the other descriptions and that she used, to de- uh, some of the descriptors of faith to place the heart upon, like what do we place the heart upon? What is the frame that supports our efforts? The Buddha liked lists and there's a list of the five spiritual faculties in this list, faith always seeds effort. The faith that we have to return to something. So what is that something that we place the heart upon? And in many Traditions, faith is a verb. It's something that we do, right? It brings that effort with it. Oh, and she says something else. Let me see if I wrote it. Nope. 
All right. She says, to offer our hearts in faith means recognizing that our hearts are worth something, that we ourselves and our deepest and truest nature are of value. When we live from this knowing, our offering is complete, generous, bountiful. I find the unstinting faith perfectly expressed in one of the verses of Lala, a 14th century mystic from Kashmir. Lala says, At the end of a crazy mood night, the love of God rose. I said, It's me, Lala. As if renewing her acquaintance with an old friend, Lala addresses her God casually, sweetly, intimately. Enchanted, I feel inspired by her winsome response, her calm expectation of being remembered. Hi, you remember me, don't you? Lala offers herself completely, no reticence due to feeling a lack of worth, no questioning of her absolute right to be there, face-to-face with the vastness of her ultimate truth. Without any doubt, the heart she brings is worthy. For a long time after I discovered this poem, it was my touchstone. I wanted to be like Lala, close up to the truth of life. One day, faced with an argument... I'm sorry, one day faced with an urgent turning point in my life, that favorite line arose in my mind, transformed into a phrase that launched me from admiration of Lala to standing in her place. It was no longer, it's me, Lala, but it's me, Sharon. It's me, Sharon, right up against the question of what it means to be alive and having to die someday. It's me, Sharon, part of constantly changing reality with all surety falling away. It's me, Sharon, not even one slight step removed from my own potential for love and awareness and my ability to realize them. It's me, Sharon, no longer appreciating from a distance Lala's upfront, textured, vibrant connection to her truth, but directly face-to-face with my own. Like Lala, we all have that absolute right to reach out without holding back toward what we care about more than anything. Whether we describe the recipient as God or a profound sense of indestructible love or the dream of a kinder world, it is the act of offering our hearts in faith that something in us transforms and what may have been merely a remote abstraction flames into life. It's me, Lala, becomes it's me, whoever we are, proclaiming that we no longer stand on the sidelines but are leaping directly into the center of our lives. Truth into full potential. No one can take that leap for us, and no one has to. This is our journey of faith. Reverend Dr. King was in his 20s when he did some of his most profound work, exercised his deepest faith, and took boldest action. We all really accept the beautiful transmission that he's offered us and learn to make good of it. Thanks for listening tonight to my musings, (laughs) y'all. Appreciate it. We have some time for walking practice now. Yeah, almost right on time, so about 40 minutes. And we'll see you back in here for the last set of the night, 9 o'clock.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.